Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research, from discovery to clinical application. Today, you're listening to a Scholarly Perspectives episode recorded live at the American Spinal Injury Association annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, 2023, with Stephanie Philippe Ratway. I'm Dave. And I'm Marla, and we're your hosts for today. And today we'll be discussing the unpublished awarded project called The Use of Functional Electrical Stimulation in Conjunction with Respiratory Muscle Training to Improve Unaided Cough in Individuals with Acute Spinal Cord Injury, which is enabled due to the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation Allied Health Professional Research Award of Asia. Our guest today is Steph Felipe Ratway. Steph received her master's degree in speech language language pathology at Florida State University in 1993. She spent 26 to 27 years working across the continuum of care, including the acute hospital, inpatient and outpatient rehabilitation with patients with varying impairments. Currently, she is at the Christine E. Lynn Rehabilitation Center for the Miami Project Cure Paralysis at U Health Jackson Memorial. In 2018, she joined the spinal cord injury rehabilitation team and work and works on the acute rehabilitation side. So welcome, Steph. Thank you. Thank you for um, having me here today. Absolutely. And congratulations on your award. And we are super excited. Both Dave and I were really excited when we read your proposal to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you, Dave and Marla, for having me here today. Indeed. Okay. First, I'm wondering how many people with the spinal cord injury have never interfaced with an SLP? (laughs) I don't think, well, I think probably in the very, very beginning of recovery, I think we typically are seen uh, at the bedside right after either extubation or if there's a necessary um, procedure or tracheostomy and ventilator phase, we are typically present and we assess the swallowing. We assess the patient is able to speak, right? Using their voice if they're tracheostomized. And then if everything is okay, once the patient no longer quote unquote needs the SLP, we typically take a very, we take a backseat or we leave altogether. That has been the role of an SLP, especially with someone with who's intact cognitively. If there's another diagnosis, where there's you know traumatic brain injury, we typically are present. But yeah, in the acute phase, yes. But once rehabilitation starts, the OTs and the PTs, the phys- PM&R physicians, are typically um, the ones who follow the. The, the patient, yeah. That's great to hear that they've at least interfaced, but maybe only in that acute post-surgical phase. And it's such great work you're doing to pull the SLP into the rehabilitation phase. This project is exactly that. Yes, I think I think we we have a huge role to play in the acute phase or in the acute rehabilitation phase, not only with looking at the project that I proposed, but also to another interesting thing that I've been doing at Kristin Lynn is to help support the education that's happening in inside the building 
you know, the patients have to learn how to care for themselves, how to cath, how to manage their bowels. And so many things come at you all at once. And you're still, you know, dealing with the great loss from the spinal cord injury. So sometimes that's a barrier to learning. And so because speech pathologists are experts at cognition retraining, we actually are working working alongside the physical therapist, occupational therapist, nursing, and the physicians to help support that education using some tricks of the trades, um, the SLP trade with cognition. That's such a great point. I uh, have a mentor that used to say that um, inpatient rehab isn't just physical boot camp, it's mental boot camp too. And so I think it's just such an important factor to be thinking about you need to be the master of your spinal cord injury. You know, spinal cord injury docs have to be the master of all spinal cord injuries. But if you have a spinal cord injury or you're a family member of a person with a spinal cord injury, you need to be an expert in that injury. So say, you know, I am transferred over to the acute rehab side. You know, I maybe have a cervical or high thoracic injury and my doc comes in and he, he or she says, all right, you're going to start with your physical therapy, occupational therapy, and I want you to work with the speech therapist to work on your respiratory system. Why do we care about the respiratory system in people with spinal cord injuries? Why do we care about cough? Why do we care about, you know, these issues? And what issues could I expect to see that I should be, you know, that I should be worried about? Absolutely. Great question. We know that um, within the first year, especially post-injury, the there's great risk for respiratory complications, especially with patients who have cervical and high thoracic. And it's because, you know, it's, there's a lack of innervation or nerve accessing those muscles that actually help the cough. If you are someone with a cervical injury, uh, you find yourself with a paralysis that may start from, you know, the high chest area, or maybe a little bit at the breast line, for example, the both, you know, high thoracic and cervical. And so the, the muscles that help us with coughing to spit out any kind of phlegm, whether you have an irritation from, you know, some dust that has, you know, passed through your nasal passages and you can't cough or clear it out or even aspiration, you know, with swallowing, if, if, if you've had difficulties with swallowing, you don't have access to that very protective uh, mechanism that we all should have. And that's the cough. And again, like I said, we know that within the first year of injury, the risk is quite high. The literature demonstrates that the respiratory complications are one of the greatest threats to, you know, health and even lead to uh, mortality in uh, spinal cord injured patients, especially with the, again, cervical and high thoracic. So you should care to, to improve that, that function. You should definitely care. And let me tell you at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. I was so scared for this exact reason. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the COVID-19 disease, makes its home in the lungs. And until we got the data, we didn't know how people with spinal cord injuries would do. 
it turned out that someone with a cervical spinal cord injury probably had about the same outcomes as someone in a skilled nursing facility, which is pretty good compared to the what I was expecting. Steph, you bring up the importance of respiration here. And in a separate thread, people with spinal cord injuries are probably really familiar with interfacing with devices of different types. So here you're going to bring in a device to help with that respiration. Can you talk a little bit about FES? Yes. So FES is, for those who don't know, it's functional electrical stimulation. And the stimulation is um, introduced to the body through surface electrodes. And the, I think it's called the milliamps, uh, which is basically the current uh, of the electricity that is introduced to, uh, through the electrodes to the different muscles. Well, that's super helpful. Yeah, very, very helpful. And surface electrodes, basically like little stickers that kind of go onto your skin there. Absolutely. To introduce it. Yeah, there's like a little gel that's uh, on the pad and we typically apply that. Can you talk a little bit about what a person would experience when you're doing the FES, uh, particularly with the respiratory side of things? If you're hooking me up to all these wires and stickers and stuff, what can I expect to feel or see or experience mm -hmm. with this setup? Again, it depends on um, your sensory access, right? The access of uh, sensory information below your injury. Sometimes uh, my patients, they have some feeling around where I'm placing the, the uh, electrodes. The first uh, sensation is, oh, it's cold, <laughs> you know? And actually they welcome that because it's, it's something else that they can feel. And there's typically no pain. I've never heard that as a, a complaint. So it's basically the sensation of the muscles contracting, being forced to contract, and you're not actually doing the contraction. So the machine is actually doing, is contracting the muscle. And it's depending on the level of electricity that's being placed, you can have light contraction or heavy contraction or squeeze to make it, you know, more of a simple term. So that's typically what I hear. And then with, with exhalation, because I'm having you exhale or I'm having you cough while the FES is on, you, that action is actually forced. So you're being, you're forced to exhale quickly and strongly. And so the deep inhalation, which is what I ask you to do, you have the deeper your inhalation, the greater the exhalation. So that's basically what, what happens within the training sessions with me. I think this is a really important point because some people with spinal cord injuries, hopefully they've had FES done to some of their paralyzed muscles. And it's going to be a much different experience when it's to muscles that maybe they have some control over, or like you say, that sensory part. Because me, I'm a person without a spinal cord injury. I've put FES electrodes on my legs and ridden the FES bike. And let me tell you, it feels like one continuous muscle cramp for half an hour. Not that your protocol is like that, but I think they should be expecting a different kind of experience. You bring up the cough, Steph. So can you tell us about the importance of cough and how maybe training with this device is going to transfer over so that cough is benefited even without the device? Yes. So... 
In certain scientific labs, the involuntary cough is elicited using different uh, chemical agents, but we're not doing that at all with, with this particular project. Again, it's more of a clinical research project. And so we're looking to see pre-training and then we train and then we see post-training what effect the training had. And so where we were interested really in understanding if you, as a person with a spinal cord injury, have an irritant, whether it's because of some environmental irritant, an aspirated event, or because of inflammation or, you know, sort of a accumulation of secretions, are you able to get that out? Are you able to expectorate and protect your lungs? And so coughing is our natural way to cough with someone with an intact spinal cord injury. You feel the need to cough, you take a deep breath, and then you cough. With a spinal cord injury, that system is compromised. And you can imagine if you're not able to clear secretions, it how un one uncomfortable it is. I know I've aspirated <laughs> as a speech, but we all have, right? We've all taken a drink too fast and we're not paying attention, then it goes in the middle. And this is a very painful and uncomfortable feeling. And so luckily for me, I'm able to cough and it takes several trials, but I'm able to clear that and then continue on my day. If you don't have access to that, you, you run the risk of this one event spiraling into something much more serious and life-threatening. So for example, an aspiration cannot be cleared can then lead to a pneumonia and then again, if you're newly injured or if you have already a system that is, you know, an immunocompromised, the, this pneumonia can lead to even more problems. And so the cough is really something that's, that's paramount to health. It's one of the things that we should really try to preserve or at least improve. And with... Without this research, really, we have very limited ways to help manage secretions. If you're in a hospital and you have access to suctioning, if you have an open trach, you know, people can go in and, you know, suction you. If you're at home or even in a hospital, you don't have a trach, your caregiver hopefully is there when you need to have, you know, that help from them to cough. And so they can perform, they've been trained, they can perform a an assist quad cough. Or if you have access to an, a, a cough assist machine and someone is there and can place the mask over your, your lips and nose, then you cough and clear that out. But those are the only things that we have right now that are accessible to patients who have either a high C, cervical or high thoracic. So this project is really to see, can you, can we train your muscles to help with coughing, even if it's just, you know, cough, it just repetitive cough. And until someone can actually come in and assist with a, a larger 
cough to fully expectorate. And so we're working with voluntary coughing training and the literature does point to even when you work with increasing the voluntary cough, it does have an effect on the reflexive cough, which which is important. That's quite a great little nugget. You know what I notice as well is it seemed like maybe a decade or two in the past in spinal cord injury land, these devices were supposed to be healing people, and now it's that the devices are helping the rehab heal people. Do you notice that here with the respiratory training as well? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think we're under... I think what what helps is that we have a we're getting better at understanding what it takes to to increase function in in patients and we do have the tools available and the tools are actually getting better in more specific with regard to function so I think so for sure yeah, I think I mean, this is a really cool topic and it's such an important thing to be focused on the respiratory side of things, especially in the inpatient stay, because what we're trying to do is prevent people from having to come back into the hospital. You know, we always say you're welcome to come back, but only if you're visiting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned some of these techniques like the quad cough, assisted cough, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about some of those different techniques, some things that people may learn while they're an inpatient, whether they're the person with the spinal cord injury or the person that may be, you know, helping care for them. And just talk a little, a little bit about how you go through the education process with them during the inpatient side of things. Absolutely. So the other, another thing that I did mention um, that helps with coughing is prone, proning patients. And we do that, uh, I do a lot of co-treatments with either physical therapy and occupational therapy, especially with folks who have had high cervical injuries to prone the patients. We do chest PT. So those are other modalities that we, we have available. And if the patient is, the caregivers are able to be trained and the patient feels comfortable with the caregiver proning them. And if they have uh, the necessary equipment or pillows, you know, that sort of thing to help prone the patient, that's, that's part of the education we undertake in the acute phase, in acute rehabilitation phase. The problem with proning is a lot of the patients, especially early on, have cervical collars. And so that is a bit limiting with regard to moving, you know, patients in bed or on a mat and that sort of thing. So it's typically reserved for the professionals in the rehabilitation setting. But when educating, that is everyone who passes through the rehabilitation will leave knowing how to perform a quad cough. We go through with it. I go through with, with the patients and their family, the physical therapists, the OTs, the nurses, the doctors, we are, it's, it's at, at nauseam. And it's because lung function and uh, protecting the lungs is so important. And again, within the first year of, of recovery, even more so. And so just to go through we, for myself, when I educate the patients, I ask them if they've ever seen anyone perform a Heimlich maneuver, 
yes oh i've seen it on tv blah 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 okay well picture yourself in front of of your loved one instead of behind and then sort of looking where the belly button is and sort of placing your your hands and i show them specifically where to place their hands and it's a coordinated cough so the patient has to be involved you coordinate you count take a deep breath and then do the upward thrust and we we go through it i have patient patients families try to perform one on myself you know and i do th that on them so they can sort of have a feel of of what should happen and then they have uh, many opportunities while in rehab to to practice that and that's something that is that's easy you don't need equipment um, to to actually perform that it can be done anywhere for someone who is in need of something greater, the use of a an assistive device, um, there are different ones on the market, but basically it works in the principle of insufflation, exufflation. So there's, you know, great amount, a lot of uh, air that is introduced in the lungs. There's a little bit of pressure there, uh, sort of like a stack breath. And then the machine gives it a little, a little bit of a jolt, you know, it's not an electrical jolt, but you know, it's sort of like a little pressure jolt. And then the um, cough is then elicited that way, but that's a little bit more cumbersome. And, and we don't see that uh, really in the rehabilitation or, you know, when the patients leave, but that's something that's also available. That's great stuff. So now you're going to use an FES device to help me so that I can cough better without the FES device if I'm someone with a spinal cord injury. But when I'm using that device with the FES, is it going to make me go too hard? Like E-STEM can be pretty intense. Am I going to cough so hard I get a hernia? Am I going to poop? How's this going to go? Right. Yeah. There's, those are great, great questions. No, it's, it's the simple <laughs> of it all. We before we introduce the um, electrical stim, we need to know how you respond to that. And uh, we don't turn on the electricity or the electrical impulses so high that they put you in, in any kind of danger. So we typically do muscle testing. We look at how your muscles are responding to the stim. And we typically set the stim at a level that it's be your muscles are actually beginning to respond, right? So we'll start out at zero milliamp and it's slowly, the amplitude rises slowly. And then the minute I see a bit of a squeeze of the muscles, we stop. And that's typically where, where we begin training. The load uh, on the respiratory muscle trainer is set in that same way. We have you blow into the, a device a few times as hard as you can, inhale as, as deeply as you can, and then we take that maximum exhalation pressure and the maximum inhalation pressure, and we set the training load at about 75 percent of that max. If you can't handle it, we start lower. And then as the training continues, 
your muscles get stronger and we can increase the load. So if you think about going to the gym and working with a you know personal trainer, for example, he's going to do fitness test and muscle testing, and he's going to find out what's the maximum load or, you know, of, of a dumbbell that you can pick up. So if the the highest is say 25 pounder, but you can only do it, pick it up once. If you've got a good personal trainer, he's not going to have you start at 25 <laughs> because you'll quit that same day and we'll come back to the gym. I know I would. So um, that trainer is going to set your training at the level where you're going to be able to complete the sets and you're going to feel good when you leave. So, but also have a positive outcome after a few weeks of training. So it's typically what that is. Love that. So your friendly neighborhood SLP is going to dial you in. <laughs> That's <Perfect>. right. <laughs> All right, Steph, we're going to shift gears here. And, um, you know, from the outside, sometimes research is a bit of a black box. And this beautiful award, it's titled the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation Allied Health Professionals Research Award of Asia, allows us to highlight a little bit about how that black box works. So for, I might think, you know, from the outside, don't all medical providers do research you know, like, isn't that something that everyone does? So can you talk a little bit about this award in particular and how it helps enable you to contribute to research? Maybe a little bit of the role that you played in research before this award. Right. Yeah. I have, I'm 30 years in, I won't tell you my age, but <laughs> Fair. I don't look my age. Can I say that? <laughs> um, Confirmed. <just> <laughs> I do. I've earned every mile on this, on this body. Absolutely. But um, the, no, I've never participated in research before I've worked in the clinical setting. Um, I've even worked in the schools as a speech pathologist didn't last long. I tip my hat off to all the pediatric <laughs> therapists. I uh, wasn't just couldn't do it myself, but I, I've, I've never, never really had any, any experience in research, except for reading a lot of research articles. I pride myself in keeping up with the literature. And really, it's because my motivation is I want to do as much as I can for my patient. I That is why I am here. It's an, a privilege and an honor to take part in their recovery. There's an old adage, I know, Marla, you're a physician, so I hope you don't take offense <laughs> to what I'm about to say. But they say that physicians save your life, but therapists hand your life back to you. And so I take my my role in the patient's recovery very, very seriously. So that's basically the coming into this. That's been my exposure to research was really reading articles and understanding what's a good article, what's not such a good article, and what I can take away from some articles that I've I've read. Really, I have to credit Dr. Gator <laughs> again. And Dr. David Gator, prior to his passing, was the chief medical officer of uh, the Christian E. Lynn Rehabilitation Center at University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. And um, he 
went to ASKIP in 2021, it must have been. It was the first year after COVID when everything sort of opened up. Uh, prior to that, I think ASKIP was virtual for a couple of years. And he came back from, from that conference. Um, ASKIP is the American Spinal Cord Injury Professionals, right? Or the Academy, Academy of Spinal Cord Injuries Professionals. He came back from that conference and gathered all the clinicians in the rehab uh, gym and told us that um, he was surprised that Jackson was not represented at the conference, that he did not want uh, the following year to look exactly like that year that he wanted. We had, there was too much talent, those were his words, in this building for us not to be represented. And we are the spinal cord injury professionals, and we are experts at our field. And so he invited anyone, any clinician to come to his office if we had any sort of ideas. And I had been working with the physical therapist, Lauren Kaminsky, with our spinal cord injured patients in using these modalities. It's something that, again, through my on research, reading articles, and understanding the need that I didn't feel like I was filling, I needed something else to do with my patients to really help them. And so she asked me, was it okay if, if we took our work to Dr. Gator? And um, that's how this research really came to be. Having this award helps with really getting this proposal or this research out of just being a proposal to getting more and more patients in and seeing how we can improve the work in, in respiratory. So hopefully having this award will sort of open up our ability to recruit more patients instead of seeing one patient here, one patient there, but actually recruit patients and um, get the materials and, and the equipment that, that really is needed to, to carry this to a larger scale. Yeah, this is great. So Steph, you say that physicians save your life, clinicians hand you your life back. And as an academician, I'm sitting here in an ivory tower, just staring down at everybody. So but that exactly is what I would like to highlight here. In the end, a lot of times clinicians and physicians, they're end users of research findings. And here you're being invited by this beautiful award to participate in the production of research instead of just using the outcome. You know, as a researcher, we're really good at making the is questions, but you can guide us through your lived experience on the ought questions. So just really want to highlight how great I think this is. Um, good luck on the award. Have fun at, uh, at Asia, and it was an absolute pleasure having you here today. Thank you so much. It's an honor, really, to, to sit across the table here with both of you. And um, I have to say that researchers are so important in, in our role. So <laughs> please, David, keep doing what you're doing, <laughs> because without, without really the evidence and, and your hypotheses and you guys going and doing the work and proving or disproving, really um, the basis of my work um, wouldn't, it wouldn't exist. So absolutely, I think it just takes a village. 
join us. We have data. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. I wanted to take a few minutes just to thank my mentors who have inspired me and guided me throughout this project. I have two that are named, who are named on the grant, and that's Dr. Hoyt. She's an SLP at University of Arizona. And then Dr. Felix, who is at the University of Miami and works also uh, with University of Miami Project for the Cure of Paralysis. They've guided me uh, tremendously throughout the development of the protocol, and I just wanted to thank them. Uh, I also wanted to thank Dr. Gary Farkas, who has also helped me with really all of the mechanics of writing a grant. Uh, thank you so much for all the dedication and the time that you guys have spent with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Communication Committee. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of Asia's Education Committee. This podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts, David McMillan, that's me, and Marla Petriello, our editor, Abby Fox, production assistant, James Conception, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at SCI Perspectives Podcast at gmail.com.